Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Ethicast. I'm your host, Bill Coffin. Last November, the Bitcoin and digital currency news site Coindesk published a report that raised concerns that heavyweight crypto exchange FTX, run by the so-called crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried, was over-leveraged and that its sister organization, Alameda Research, had solvency concerns. In the days that followed, FTX swiftly collapsed in a crypto equivalent of a run on the bank, wiping out thousands of investors and rocking the entire cryptocurrency world. Under intense scrutiny from the FTX collapse, Bankman-Fried was himself arrested about two months later under allegations that he looted some $8 billion from the FTX exchange servers. Bankman-Fried's trial took a month, and on November 3rd, just after four hours of deliberation, he was found guilty on seven assorted fraud and conspiracy charges. Bankman-Fried faces a maximum sentence of 110 years in prison for his crimes. He will face a second set of charges next March that include alleged uh, foreign bribery and bank fraud conspiracy. Quote, the crypto industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new, but this kind of fraud is as old as time and we have no patience for it, said U.S. federal prosecutor Damian Williams of The Verdict, which places Bankman-Fried among other infamous financial criminals such as Michael Milken, Bernard Ebers, Bernard Madoff, and Jordan Belfort. With us today to discuss the ethics and compliance implications of all this is Ethisphere's Chief Strategy Officer and Executive Chair, Erica Salmon-Byrne. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all, Bill. Uh, as you know, uh, I have been eager to discuss this particular topic with you um, really ever since the trial got started. On November 11th of last year, FTX collapsed, spectacularly so. On November 3rd of this year, Bankman-Fried receives his guilty verdict. That's less than a year. What can we take away from the speed with which the U.S. government prosecuted its case against Bankman-Fried? I think we can take away a couple of things, um, Bill. One is these kinds of, of corporate prosecutions, I think, have gotten easier in the digital age because there's more, um, there's more evidence that one can collect uh, if you think about things like approving uh, expense reports using Slack emojis and some of the other back and forth that the, the government was able to unearth. I also think um, in a very analogous situation to WorldCom, the imposition of a bankruptcy uh, uh, sort of executor for FTX assisted the government um, when it came to the case because the, the government was able to have a, a party that they could work with. So the, from a timing perspective, I think you can think about this as, as being analogous to the WorldCom, Evers and Sullivan prosecutions, right? In terms of the ease with which the government was able to build their case. They also flipped a lot of executives in their pursuit of SBF, which is a, a kind of a standard prosecutorial tactic. The thing that, that I was most struck by from a speed perspective though, was, uh, was the speed with which the jury reached its verdict, right? Um, the fact that it took them just for four and a half hours to, to mm -hmm. you know, unanimously convict him on all counts or on the seven counts rather, um, that is is pretty striking, uh, and it it says something about how compelling the prosecution's case was. Yeah, no lie, it'll probably take us longer, all told, to produce this episode than it will have taken that jury to, to find Bankman Freed guilty, uh, yeah. which says an awful lot, to be honest. It does. Um, you would so you named you would name check Worldcom. Um, and whenever there's a big case like this, I immediately default to Enron, WorldCom, Parmalat, that whole dark era, right? Of all those, of all those massive, massive, uh, you know, wrongdoings. You know, in terms of scope severity, but most importantly, in terms of its ability to impact the landscape of ethics and compliance expectations going forward, 
where would you put this case, uh, especially compared to all those others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would put it, um, Bill, kind of in that pantheon of, you know, corporate collapses, corporate frauds, um, particularly that harmed very good people who had done nothing wrong, right? You you talked a little bit about the investor loss in this particular case. Um, that's always one of my takeaways anytime something like this happens is the extent to which uh, good people who were, you know, trying to find safe places for their money uh, ended up losing, particularly I'm thinking about the Alameda Research side of the house as opposed to the FTX side of the house. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think it fits nicely into that that sort of trajectory. Um, we could even go back further, right? You know, I, you and I were talking in the lead up to, to recording this episode about how in some ways this is just the latest Dutch tulip craze, right? We've been, people have been chasing, um, you know, fads like this since, you know, since, since people became people, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's part of why uh, I like to remind ethics and compliance folks that they will always have a job because, you know, there are, we're finding new ways to do it, but the fundamental behavior underpinning it is, is basically the same. So speaking of Alameda Research, a large part of this case was around the, the relationship between FTX and its sister organization. So can you explain that relationship? Can you explain like why it was so out of bounds? And most importantly, what can our fellow ethics and compliance professionals take away from that particular situation? Yeah, I think um, in, the, in the, the age old phrase, Bill, of a picture is worth a thousand words, um, I would encourage anybody who has not taking a look at the Michael Lewis book on FTX um, to just pull up the org chart, right? Mm. I mean, this thing is gonna make your eyes bleed. It was the most convoluted, yeah. complicated, you know, I, I mean, th these guys created a sub, you know, every time they sneezed, it seems like if you look at the org chart, it was an incredibly, incredibly Byzantine structure. Um, I think there were very few lines of clear accountability Anybody with a compliance title is like a nine layers down in that thing, right? Even on something as important as KYC, um, the KYC team is even buried and also duplicated across the org chart, depending on which of the entities you're looking at. So, you know, the, that lends itself to a um, the opportunity for the founder to execute a lot of things that were um, at best ill-intentioned um, and at worst fraudulent when you have that level of uh, lack of, of accountability and clarity in an org chart. And so if I think about what the opportunities are for us to take away lessons for the ethics and compliance professionals out there, it's really um, to take a step back and look at your line of sight, right? What is your line of sight up? What is your line of sight down? Do you, you, know, do you have the necessary information to be able to see across your organization? Do you have the access to be able to see across your organization? Or are you, you know, enmeshed in this web of reporting lines that will quite frankly make it impossible for you to effectively do your job. In cases like this, I always feel a little bad for the defense counsel because their job is so is so huge and yes, they have their work really cut out for them. In this case, SBF's defense was that he was an executive who simply got in over his head and couldn't manage two multi-billion dollar organizations. Now, of course, that defense did not hold water, but let's pretend for a moment that it did. All right, let's a moment let's imagine a world in which there was no criminal intent here, but rather just a case of colossal incompetence. In such a world, what are the kinds of governance safety rails that would have prevented something like this from, from reaching the inevitable conclusion? Yeah, um, Bill, I'm gonna go back to that that bananas org chart, 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is probably governance rail number one, right? Who's responsible for which subs? What reporting lines do they have in place? What are the controls you have between the subs? Who's overseeing all of those pieces, right? If the, 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 the more your org chart looks like spaghetti, the more likely it is that you've got elements of a shell game happening mm-hmm. somewhere across, you know, that, that, that organization. And so um, I think part of the reason why that defense failed as spectacularly as it did is, you know, there was just one name at the top of that org chart and it was his. Um, and so, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't do something that Byzantine if you are not trying to hide stuff or allow stuff that in a normal regulatory environment wouldn't be allowed. This case was handled by the Southern District of New York, which is well known to everybody in the ethics and compliance space. But to those who maybe are kind of new to it, can you explain why this particular jurisdiction is such an important one, especially for cases like this? And to what degree does this jurisdiction create high watermarks for the rest of the compliance and ethics space to follow? So the Southern District of New York has a very long-standing tradition of uh, successfully um, and effectively prosecuting white-collar corporate crime, right? Um, You know, if you look at most of the interesting cases uh, over the course of the last couple of decades, they have come into and out of the Southern District of New York. Um, And so if you're somebody who's operating in the ethics and compliance space, in particular, um, build to draw a through line into one of the last Ethicasts that you and I recorded together on Uh, tabletop exercises with your board. Well, boy, would this be an interesting one to do with your board. Now, obviously, the vast majority of people listening to this particular Ethicast are not, you know, backdooring money transfers from one sister subsidiary to the other and things along those lines. But the, the oversight aspect of this, the, you know, who was talking to whom aspect of this, the, the, those elements, I do think, Um, are things that would make for a good tabletop exercise. And so anytime something's coming out of the Southern District, uh, there's always an opportunity for uh, a a compliance team to take a look at that particular fact pattern and ask themselves, how could it happen here? Mm -hmm. Now, as you said earlier in this episode, and you've said this many times before as well, that you know, people are messy and unpredictable. And if that weren't the case, there wouldn't be a need for people like us, right? Yep. but even by that standard, in this case, we're seeing people being extremely messy and being extremely unpredictable. So mm-hmm. my question to you is, is FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried together, are they a kind of black swan event for ethics and compliance? Or is there something larger going on here you're seeing with attitudes towards criminality and accountability that we should be taking notice of? Yeah, I, you know, I think though there, there are certainly elements of this that you can you can pull out of the fact pattern and say, you know, this was people being people, right? And what were some of the ways that we could have had better systems, better lines of sight, better governance rails that would have kept people from being people to this extent? But as you and I were talking about in the lead up to recording this episode, I also don't want to overlook the fact that the underpinning uh, foundation upon which FTX was built is crypto, right? And crypto as a concept um, was pretty quickly turned to a a dark place in many cases, right? We had, you know, it was being used for arms trafficking. It's being used for trafficking people. It's being used for ransomware, right? Like this is a, this is a found, this is a shaky foundation upon which to build something, right? Even if the underlying 
you know, blockchain technology itself has so many fantastic potential applications, right? It's it's yeah. a it's a it's a wonderful conceptual technological advance, but this particular application of it lends itself to a dark place. So the foundation upon which FTX was built in the first place was shaky, right? They created a coin, they used it to to get loans, to buy, you know, other digital currency. They then, you know, kind of ballooned from there. So, um, you know, it, it's, it, I don't want to over-index on this, that, that, this particular um, situation because of that aspect of, you know, kind of the foundation upon which it was built. At the same time, a lot of really, you know, normal good people lost a lot of money. And so anytime that happens, we have to look really hard at the human aspects, right? What were the informal or formal systems that allowed FTX to fall apart the way it did and as quickly as it did, right? What were the the, the backdoor conversations um, that that kept people from listening to their better, their better angels, right? Um, how did this get set up in such a way to make it so easy for so many people to do bad things? Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of a great science fiction short story by the author Neil Stevenson uh, that had been, gosh, published maybe 20 years ago called The Great Simoleon Caper. Uh, and it's all about what if you created a digital currency out of nothing with nothing to back it and what kind of havoc might ensue. And I remember it was quite a novel story when I read it. And it is exactly uh, what has happened now with crypto in terms of funds being designed kind of out of bad intent or uh, just with a real weird sense of value that, to your, to your point, um, creates rather extensive shell games and kind of makes a an environment that is intrinsically hostile to the precepts of ethics and compliance and good faith that we tend to govern, you know, business by uh, above the table. So um, not entirely surprised to see this Bankman Freed uh, episode ending as the way it has. Um, and and I would also remind all of our listeners, it's not just SPF, right? That, I mean, that was the high profile trial. That's where a lot of the details mm -hmm. came out. But the government flipped a whole bunch of people who pled guilty, right? So, so this was, um, you know, this was a, a this was a, a, a great example of, um, you know, a, 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 an organizational setup that allowed for just a complete fundamental lack of accountability. Uh, and when you allow people that much leeway, more often than not, they're not going to make the right choices. Ethosphere is not really in the habit of dunking on companies or sort of pointing fingers. We're all about solutions and we like to look yep. forward and point to best practices. So I guess I'd like to flip this a little bit before we bring this to an end, which is, you know, crypto as an industry is in kind of a very nascent place. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of perspective regulation around it. Um, I'm reminded a little bit, believe it or not, of uh, the life insurance industry and specifically the life settlements industry, which for a long period of time, life settlements were seen as kind of an outlaw product. Um, Nobody had ever imagined a product like that before, so it fell outside the regulations. Um, and in time, that industry wanted to be regulated because that set um, expectations around it. It gave it legitimacy. It gave it a sense of certainty. And it really helped to cement it as a proper part of a larger industry. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. with, with crypto, can you see that same thing happening where if we get a proper regulatory framework around cryptocurrencies in general, could that in time help to create a more solid foundation on which we can see uh, better best practices uh, in terms of ethics, in terms of compliance, in terms of governance, in terms of regulatory behavior. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, Bill, without question, uh, we, we, could, we could see that outcome. And you can already see a certain amount of it 
in some of the conversations that we are, are hearing um, from people in the space who are pushing for a regulatory protocol, who are looking to the SEC to create regulations that would allow, you know, the, the um, sort of regular uh, in, involvement with crypto um, in some of the larger players in the space who are interested in offering, you know, crypto as a, as a, as, as a, an option to um, the people that, that, that have invested with them. So I, I absolutely see the likelihood of that. Um, I also see the likelihood that, you know, the, 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 the underpinning technological advance that led to crypto in the first place, the, the, the blockchain technology having more and more potential applications. Um, so I think your life, and I think that's, that's a, that's a really good example of a path that this could potentially go down. And I hope that the spectacular collapse of, of FTX and the coverage of what happened there um, hastens that outcome, quite frankly, um, because the technology is here. Um, the technology, you know, it's, it's, it is happening. And so, you know, much like the push to regulate AI, um, I think we are, you know, we, we have to pursue the push to regulate crypto because uh, otherwise we're gonna continue to, to have situations like FTX. Well, Erica, as always, it's terrific to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Bill. My pleasure. And for anybody out there who's listening, you know, this is uh, it's very easy to say, well, that could never happen here. Right. Um, but the takeaway, aside from, you know, sort of the the, the rubbernecking that we all did uh, around the debacle that was the collapse of FTX, the takeaway is ask yourself questions about your own org structure and whether you have situations where subs are being set up. Um, that would be deliberately uh, obfuscating your line of sight. To learn more about values-based leadership, ethical culture, the social license to operate, and more, please visit the Ethisphere Resource Center at ethisphere.com and hit the Resources tab for a wealth of helpful videos, reports, and presentations. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been the Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.